The title this morning is Dynamic Holiness. Uh, kind of a, a big title um, we're going to get through. Uh, to, to, to break that down, dynamic, a force that changes. That's on the slide there. Um, dynamic, a force that motivates change. And holiness, how do you describe that? Holiness is simply, I think the best explanation is that God is holy and you're not. Okay, so we'll leave it as that's the definition of holiness, something that you are not and that God is. Um, So I really enjoy serving. Um, I serve on the PA team. That's one of the things I do. Uh, I I enjoy doing service in church because it gets us involved. We've, We've got to know so many of you through the service that we do as well as life group, that would be the other thing uh, that we really in, enjoy. Uh, you know, service is hard sometimes, but it is a really critical way to get tapped in, uh, whether it's a life group or it's service. These are such important things, I, I do think that. So I was really pleased when Steve emailed and, and, and said, you know, if, if you, there's an opportunity if you want to get involved on a Sunday morning to speak. Uh, I was like, yeah, love to do that, love to serve there. And... Uh, there's an exchange of dates because we just tying down what date was going to work and finally came down on the date so I get the passage from Steve with uh, just some pointers uh, just you know uh, to get me going and uh, I, I was like yeah great off we went and this kind of slow feeling came over me as I dug into the passage of like oh my goodness <laughs> well okay <laughs> here we go this is interesting um, and I, I was trying to find an analogy, and I've, I've got the I, movies always end up being the thing I think about. And my kids were watching this really trashy kids B movie when we were on holiday. Uh, it's like Wednesday morning, half term, and there's this, this bunch of kids on holiday, and uh, sorry, not on holiday. There's a bunch of kids in an orphanage. They're orphans. They're they're not doing quite so well in life. They're struggling a bit, a bit disaffected, and uh, they're trying to tap them in and get them involved and. Uh, get them to just case uh, as a group and find value in life and things. And uh, so even the guy who runs the orphanage is, is, is not quite connecting with them. And this lady friend comes along and uh, starts getting the kids to play football, American movie. Um, and uh, these kids start starts working for them. Things are going good. They start... You know, doing okay at football, not winning so much, but they need some kit. So she buys them some kit. And there's this moment that, um, the analogy really is this moment where the kit comes out the back of the car and they start putting on their new football shirts and then, you know, their new shorts. And, then, and they look down and they realize that the sponsor is the local funeral parlor. And uh, so Acts 5, <laughs> I'm there this morning. We've got this really interesting passage, one commentator says this, this is one of the most unnerving episodes in the whole of the New Testament. That's what the commentator said. I've actually been a real fan of expository preaching. Uh, Expository preaching is where you take a book of the Bible and you just go through it, chapter by chapter by chapter. There's a great discipline in that. And uh, I think what it means is that you can't avoid anything. You have to tackle difficult passages odd passages, weird passages, and uh, for me, uh, I've always said, you know, that's a great way to preach. I think topical's brilliant as well, but I, I have this thing where I do love doing expository preaching, and uh, this morning I really get to taste my own wisdom, <laughs> because I've got this passage that's like, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't know if I want to do this one. Uh, this is a passage 
where two people come to church and they end up dead. They end up dead. And there's absolutely nothing Agatha Christie about this. Nothing funny in some ways. It's really deadly serious. But the, the thing that was so encouraging uh, and really encouraged me as I read it, the amazing life that you see coming out of this. Um, so we're going to read the passage. I think it's coming up on there. I'm going to read it from the New Living, which I think it's NIV on the screen. But I'm just going to read it, uh, and then we're going to dig right into it. Um, so I'm going to read up to verse 20, I think. We haven't got time to do the whole thing. Um, but there was a certain man named Ananias, who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He bought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to give or keep. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could you two even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they'll carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet, more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women, and as a result, the apostles' work Sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits and were healed. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail and brought them out. And he told them, Go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So I'm just going to pray uh, and we're going to look through that passage. Father, I'm not unaware that we're looking at a passage where several people came, as we'll see. And they came before you, like I stand before you this morning, Father. And in some cases, great life came. And in other cases, there was death. Humbly, Father, I just say... We're not all right. We need your forgiveness. And we need your holiness as we approach you. 
It's not something we can do, Father. I just pray this morning that you come and give us the gift of your Holy Spirit to bring that purity and holiness in us, Father, by your power and your Spirit. Amen. So uh, I want to place us into the story uh, and uh, understand where we are and what's going on and what the result is of this point. Because this is quite an explosive point in church history. It's quite a critical point. We're looking at the real history of the church. And it's a point where things change. The event that happened this morning meant that things changed direction. And I've got this really bad analogy um, the obvious analogy is Spider-Man, okay? So what, what am I going on about? So uh, Spider-Man, this is the first, the, the picture of it's come up, this is the first comic strip, the original comic strip from Spider-Man. And uh, if you read it, um, it's great on the original one, but the film does it as well. It's, it's a critical moment in the life of Peter Parker. He has, he's a, a geeky school kid, um, He's the school joke. He's a bullied bookworm. Uh, he never really gets the girl, gets picked on. Um, and through this kind of freak atomic accident from his science geek interest and a bit of an angry, upset spider, he gets this immense power. Immense power. And the first thing he does is start to look at his life and figure out how he can use this power to make it work for him. And uh, he goes about doing stuff that works for him. He wants to get the girl. He wants the power not to be picked on. And as the story goes forward, uh, there's this point where his uncle suddenly gets killed. His uncle is killed by... Uh, a bank robber, he sees the picture of him, and he had the opportunity days before to stop this robber. But selfish as he was, he was only doing things that benefited him. And suddenly, in his shock, the massive shock at the death of his uncle, he realizes that he could have stopped. He has this moment where he realizes this kind of epic Marvel phrase uh, that comes with the comic, with great power comes great responsibility. Great power, great responsibility. It's not the best analogy, I realize that, but it serves a purpose. Because it's a, it's a point here where the church changes direction. Like Peter Parker, who um, has to change direction. He realizes the, the immense seriousness of what's going on. The church now changes direction. We've, we've had this really amazing time where um, they are just agents, really, of God's immense work. The work on the cross that brought Jesus to the life, incredible power. That power that comes through and just uh, in waves comes through the church with healings. Uh, this, this power has dealt with the problem of man's sin and brought man close to God. The separation is now solved. Death has now been defeated. And suddenly, they see this power in another way because it brings instant and sudden death. There's no room for correction. There's no room for apology. There's no opportunity to put this right. I mean, Ananias and Severa didn't get a chance to say, oh, sorry, 
let's learn from our mistake. And I kind of, you know, it brings a lot of questions to us, doesn't it? Why doesn't God do that to every lying hypocrite in the church? Am I even any better than them? That crosses my mind as I kind of bring this this morning and kind of chew on that passage before we get here. So we've got some hard questions. Why now? And why them? Why does this happen right now? And why did it happen to them and not someone else? What was it? These are hard questions. Um, What was their mistake? What was their sin? And I spent a lot of time thinking about that, a lot of time reading to try and understand what it is. And I did realize that I can't justify what God did. That's not my job. God's prerogative is perfect justice. We know that. And I'm not here to justify his justice, one man against another. That's not my place. I can only take the facts that we have. I've done the homework and present to you the reasons why I think. But if there's a sense of uncertainty and a slight bit of fear, but I, I, you know, as you read this and you wonder what's going on, I wonder if that's perhaps uh, there's a reason for that. It's a fearful thing we're reading about, and we mustn't forget that. Perhaps that uncertainty or fear we have when we read this and we realize the immense power of what's going on, that uncertainty and fear is actually what brings fruit. And we'll see that again. So there's three points I want to make when we look at what was going on here. And the first one is about holiness. There's a gap between where you're at and where God is. And you can't bridge that gap. That's what Christ did. You can't fake your holiness before God. And Ananias and Sapphira had this idea that they could deceive the community to serve their own ambition. And to understand that, you actually need to go back to chapter 4. And in the closing section of chapter 4, you meet someone called Joseph or Barnabas. Now, Barnabas might be a familiar name if you read your New Testament. He was, by his name, and you can tell this if you you understand uh, the the Greek and everything, but uh, his name meant that he came from the Levite community in Israel. He was an Israelite. It says some of this in in the last few verses of chapter 4. So he had Jewish roots, and the thing about Levites is that they were explicitly told under Old Testament law that they were not to own land. They shouldn't own land. Their role in the community was service. They were not to own land because they were to be committed to the service in God's temple, service to his people. And somehow, uh, this Levite, Barnabas, had stepped aside from his call on full-time priestly work. He'd neglected it. He'd become instead a very independent, self-made man. He'd obviously done well for himself, but it was a role that was independent. And as he came into this amazing community, this alive community of incredible work of the Holy Spirit, he becomes very convicted by his lifestyle, convicted by what's going on in his life. He wasn't where he was called to be, and somehow he's convicted of that and in the presence of the Holy Spirit, he seems to feel that he needs to do something to put that right. And he sells the land, all of it, 
gives it to the church, and he's free. What happens? Well, if you know your New Testament and can connect Barnabas with the rest of the New Testament, you will see that this young man, from the calling God put on his life and the conviction of what the Holy Spirit told him to do to put his life right, there was amazing outcomes. Acts 11.22, Gentile converts in Antioch due to Barnabas. Acts 11.30, the entire relief effort for the poor is given to Barnabas. Paul's epic missionary journey, you can read from in 13 onwards, uh, who accompanies Paul, helps him, does so much work with Paul, Barnabas. Who advocates for the reconciliation of a failed leader to just bring reconciliation and forward movement in the church, Acts 15.37, Barnabas. Somehow, Barnabas had a specific calling on his life to put things right with God, He discovers God afresh, exposed through the Holy Spirit what he needed to put right in his life. Enter Ananias and Sapphira. They see this young man. They don't know what's going to happen in all of his life, but they see what he does. And it does say that he got immediate respect within the community. People immediately saw the genuine move of what Barnabas had done and his sincerity in his action. And Ananias and Sapphira make a very calculated decision to mimic that, to mimic his holiness. Peter says this, before you sold the land, it was yours. After you sold it, it was yours. When you had this pile of money, it was yours. Why? Why Why did you do this? Why did you pull a trick like this? Acts 5, 3 to 4. Why did they do it? They're ambitious They wanted to become eminent disciples in a powerful movement. They wanted the respect, the praise, and admiration without any of the sacrifice. It's a hugely deceptive act. There's no fear in what they do. Second point is this. They completely mistrust God's provision. If you think about where the church was in the passage we just read, there is this phrase that we've read in some of the chapters before, and it's repeated several times, there was no need in the church. No need. I mean, really, do you know a church like that? Have you ever come across a church where there was no need, that no one in the church needed anything? Really? This absolutely no needs. None, nothing, not one need. And Ananias come along, and Sapphira comes along, and they have a need. I mean, there's a disconnect. What? There's a church that has no needs. Amazing life. And they decide they need this great big fat pile of cash to back up whatever they're thinking of doing. In 4 verse 33, there's this phrase. It says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And it translates this word great as mega, massive. I mean, At that moment in time, the grace God was pouring out on his church was mega grace. Incredible. It was an attractive place where people mattered so much more than things. Somehow, Ananias and Sapphira completely misjudged that. It's a really strange battle going on inside his head. He has this zeal and faith that gets him to make this public profession of faith. 
but he thinks he can get it more cheaply. They completely misjudge God's power. They want it. They aspire to some kind of power, but they want to back it up through their self-sufficiency, the wealth of this world. You can't serve God and serve something else. In this case, they wanted wealth. When push came to shove, where was their faith? Where did they put their faith? Did they put their faith in God? Or did they back it up with something else? It's no wonder that when you come to later points in the New Testament, and many of the writers are writing about money, they say things like this. It's 1 Timothy 6. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and many griefs. I mean, I wonder, did Timothy know that story? The third point is that he lied to God and thought that he wouldn't notice. Do you think that God doesn't know what's going on inside your head, in your heart, in your life? Really? Peter pinned their fault on only this fact. The other things are context. They lied to God. That's what Peter said. We have this utmost importance to deal honestly with God, to be completely right with him. And that only happens when you're alone and in front of God. They lied directly to God. Speak truthfully to him. Ask him for his forgiveness and grace. And his eternal life. What they did in some ways was a small thing compared to some of the things that people do. I'll give an example. Psalm 139. This is what David says. David gets before God and pours out his heart. Is this what you would pray? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And I tell you, there was, and David knew it. Lead me in the way everlasting. Let's look at David for one moment. Where was his heart? Is there any offensive way in me? I mean, David's painted as a pretty great guy, yeah? But hang on a minute. What of all his great deeds? And then on the other hand, his heart was a dark place. Greed, jealousy, lust, murder, betrayal. That's what he did. 1 Samuel 11 and 12. Go and read it. He lusted after something, took it, and murdered someone else to protect it. None of that was right. Why didn't God strike him down? God had something to deal with in David, but he also had something to work with. He had honesty. David shared the truth about his broken heart. He said this in Psalm, 100, Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You can't fool God's Holy Spirit. You can't fool it. It's a really powerful force at work in your life 
and in the life of the church. It forges your salvation. It brings cleansing. It brings you into God's presence. It makes you holy. It's only His Holy Spirit that does those things. Notice in that prayer that David's cry to God was twofold. Don't withdraw your Holy Spirit from me. Even before the Holy Spirit had come completely. And don't cast me from your presence. David knew that he had complete dependence on God's Holy Spirit for his life and his holiness. 100% dependence. God knows everything that's going on inside your heart. And he might not act now like he did with Ananias and Sapphira. That's his grace and his patience. But he will act. Just be really honest with God about where you're at. Accept his Holy Spirit to come into your life to bring cleansing and an experience of his presence. The only thing that's going on there is honesty before God. What about the end result? I wanted to bring a picture in. It's kind of a heavy thing that was going on, and I was thinking of different pictures. Uh, there's this picture here of a forest. And the forest is black. It's been burnt to the ground. It's completely destroyed. But instead, you can see an amazing, flourishing life. Beautiful flowers. And there's a type of forest that covers a very large part of North America and Russia called a boreal forest. And in 1998, they had one of the worst ever years for wildfires. Um, extreme amount of forest was destroyed. Over 11 million hectares, 110,000 square kilometers. But the thing about this fire is that it's actually, the forest has actually evolved completely to sustain itself, and it uses fire as part of its natural cycle. There are certain seeds that only burst open in the extreme heat of that fire. They can lay there for years, and it's not until the fire destroys the area that those seeds come and massive growth comes forward. Without that purifying work of the fire to destroy all the dead wood, it doesn't clear the way for the fresh growth. Fire is the mechanism by which the forest is continually regenerated and renewed. God's spirit, and it's seen as fire in the day of Pentecost, is this spirit of holiness. It forges change in your life. It forges change in the church. We know that it is only by the Holy Spirit you accepted salvation and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord in your life. Scripture says that. You've received the Holy Spirit if you've made that confession. Receive the Holy Spirit. But let him cleanse your life to bring about that holiness. That's how God makes you and his church holy. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that he can't help but thank God for those in the church he's writing to, dear brothers and sisters, that chose you among the first to experience salvation 
And he says this, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. There is something purifying about the work of the Spirit. And here particularly, what's going on is a purifying of God's church. In a broader context of church, we see so much scandal and so much disappointment. And you wonder sometimes whether a purifying might do something positive. Scandal can engulf it. The generosity that Barnabas had would have encouraged immense generosity among the church. There were no needs. And Barnabas' example would have just put fire into that. People would have followed his example and the blessings that followed from that. And then the half-hearted example of what was going on with Ananias and Sapphira. How would that have affected others? You can't but think that that would have been incredibly adverse. A half-hearted, deceptive ad. Somehow, somehow, God had to purify his church at that point. The rapid advance and growth of the Christian church at that point was completely dependent on a pure and attractive witness. If that purity had been corrupted at the start, imagine what would have happened if hypocrisy and deception had crept in there. It might have dramatically stopped the advance of the church. Just to jump back to one point I missed, it's fascinating uh, to me uh, that all those people who gave so much, it seems quite outrageous in some ways. When the persecution comes that we read about next, they were so well placed to just walk away and go where God was going to call them next. They were scattered. What if they'd had all these complicated financial affairs and land and things to worry about? They had nothing. Having given everything in what seemed so extreme, the persecution and scattering that then happened, they were perfectly set up to obey God's calling and go and take the gospel everywhere. And it spread all across the Mediterranean and all across the world, ultimately, from that scattering. Sometimes, sometimes God gives a fresh view of sin, how severe and deadly it is in our lives and compares it to his holiness with shocking results, death. And today's one of those moments. The outcome is fascinating. Unbelievers keep their distance from the church, so fearful of what might be in their life. What have you got in your life when you see that immense power? But it doesn't stop the growth. It's incredible how now... It's not just the apostles laying hands on people. Peter's shadow is healing people. He just walks past people and they're healed. How powerful is that work? The fear was a fear of God's judgment on sin, Acts 5, 11 and 13. And it brings us to a choice. Just to wrap up then. What do we choose? Do you choose death? How does it end for us? I love the fact that for all the shock we've read about this morning, if there's a message 
that God comes and gives to his church after this event, what is it? And it's seen in 5 verse 20. So what's happened is after that event, there's tremendous healings. We read about that section. The next bit was jail for Peter. And in the jail, an angel comes, frees them for jail. And what's God's command to the church? It says this. Go and tell the people all about this new life. That life is backed up by tremendous healings, an amazing life, life-changing events within that local community. Imagine being there. We all make choices at points in Jesus' own teaching there came points in John 6, 66, it says, this teaching's too hard. People turned away and walked away. There was a choice. And there's the same here. There's a very stark choice. People are fearful that something in their lives might be exposed. But others experience tremendous life. Proverbs 8, 36. Practical wisdom. Practical wisdom. It teaches us those who find me find life. All who fail to find me harm themselves. And those who hate me love death. Black and white. The church is in fear. Peter says this. He talks about the sin that so easily besets us. At a time of immense outpouring of his Holy Spirit, how easy was that? for that sin to creep into his church. Such good, satisfying food that we have. Tasting that holiness, the amazing miracles that were going on. Why would we want to taste anything else? The church kept their distance from some of the world. It says that. Scared of what sin might creep in and taint their life. Peter says this. Prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put your hope in the salvation through Christ Jesus. Don't slip into your old ways, living to satisfy your own desires. You must be holy in everything you do, for God, who chose you, is holy. The scriptures say, and he's quoting the Old Testament, you must be holy because I am holy. This morning is Remembrance Sunday. We remember the past. We remember people who fought for our freedom. And we should be profoundly thankful for that and those who gave their lives. In a similar way, in the context of what we've read this morning, we are to understand what God has done for us. We're to understand the powerful force of His Spirit in our lives, working to bring about holiness, his Holy Spirit bringing us into his presence. And we must fight. We have to fight the compromise of sin. Sin that so easily besets us. So easily. If the band want to come back, I'm kind of done. I don't want Michaela to sit down since I just in. <laughs> we have a real responsibility to fight that sin that so easily besets us every day. Like in the wisdom of Proverbs, practical wisdom, practical things we do, 
We must choose life. We must seek for it. Like in Proverbs, seek for wisdom. Choose life. Every decision. The band's going to come back uh, and we're going to pray. If if anyone's here from the prayer team, please come forward. If we're going to pray for something this morning, we can pray for life and holiness in people's lives. Testimony of changed lives, changed health, changed situation, changed relationships. I'll pray now and we'll close. Uh, If you would love prayer maybe there's something going on in your life you would like a a testimony of change of new life something fresh whether it's health a relationship a situation you just need a freshness a renewal then we're going to pray for that I'll pray now and then we'll have some time of worship Father thank you that I'm still here this morning I've come before you spoken your word Father But we're fearful of you. Your spirit is an awesome thing. Powerful. Thank you that you've given us grace to live another day. To be here and make another choice. And I, Father, I just pray for a decision for life. I pray for us all that you help us reject the sin that so easily besets us. That we would know and live life. Come, Father, come now. Come, Holy Spirit, as we bring situations before you, relationships, work. I don't know what it is. Health. As we bring our health, Father, we pray for change and we pray for life. We choose life and we say, Holy Spirit, come now. Bring life to these situations. Amen.